Can I start it? It went red. I guess that means your time was up. They tried to do the same to me. I know the feeling. Well, you need to be concerned. Remember, your hours are numbered. Oh, my hours are numbered. I think it was Miss. I think it was Miss Dottie who gave me the little clipping from the newspaper that said, uh, "Church." Uh, it, it may not teach us everything about life, but it certainly teaches us about eternity. And um, and and the tongue-in-cheek joke was sometimes you feel like you're in church for an eternity. Y'all never feel that way here, do you? Shake your head no. Shake your head no. Well, my name is Dan. I'm the pastor. I want to welcome you in the way that we do and glad that we're here as we're ready to dive into God's word. And as Miss Dottie read for us, Second Thessalonians, we're starting this new series called Peace to the End. If you're with us in the fall, uh, we went through the book of First Thessalonians. We'd like to, as uh, frequently as possible, kind of try to teach through books of the Bible. It helps us uh, as, as a family of believers kind of get a gauge on, uh, you know, what's going on in the scriptures and, and helps us understand things in context. And there are times where we take a break and we uh, talk about a various topic or that sort of thing. And so um, we're in this series here now, jumping into Second Thessalonians. And um, this is the second letter that Paul wrote to a church plant. And um, he was only there just for a few short weeks, possibly. Uh, Acts chapter 7 is, is where you can kind of read about it. We'll, we'll catch up to that a little bit later on in the, in the service. But Paul goes around and he starts these various churches in different places. And his ministry there came to an abrupt end because he was being persecuted, he was being attacked. And so they had to get him out of the city. Um, and uh, they got him out of the city there. And uh, he did some other traveling around to various cities. And then he later... Uh, wrote back to the church there that he founded, and he said, how are you guys doing? And he had heard some reports, and so that was First Thessalonians, and he addressed some of the issues that the people had there, and, uh, and they were struggling with some things. Uh, namely, one of the things they were struggling with was like the return of Christ, and people were telling them Christ already come back, or that they would miss it, and what happens when we die? And, uh, and so he had to kind of correct that. And, um, and then uh, we have this correspondence, the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians there at the church. Again, that's new church plan. And and in many ways, it was a model church. He spent a lot of first uh, Thessalonians. There you go. Look at Corey, just on top of it, getting those batteries. He never changes my batteries that quickly. Thinking about that now. And uh, back to Paul, right? And he is uh, navigating... um, navigating this this church that really uh, has, has been affirmed. And he says as a model, he's saying, I'm, I'm encouraging you. Thank you, brother. Um, because they're just doing great things. And he says, you guys are an example for all the other churches in the region, in the area. And so they, they get a lot of thumbs up. Um, but then there are three major issues that he kind of attacks here in Second Thessalonians. The first issue will be the persecution, which uh, we just read about there. It appears they are still being persecuted in their own city, attacked, killed, um, uh, fired from their jobs, kicked out of their homes, um, or even unable to buy and sell things. And in the first century, uh, underneath Roman rule, it was a tough time to live for anybody, but especially for Christians. Uh, Christians were often viewed as subversive, uh, especially to the government. And so uh, because, of course, in, in the Roman world, uh, the emperor is seen as God. And when Christians are unwilling to bow before 
that ruler, um, it causes some problems. And, uh, and, and so many other things that they taught in the scripture. The second issue he deals with in chapter two is some of the false teachers, again, dealing with the end times, dealing with uh, when is Christ going to return. And so the, the church was still freaked out about that. And then the third issue he deals with is kind of lazy and disobedient uh, Christians. And so he'll talk through some of those. So as we navigate uh, today's message, the title is Sovereign Over Suffering. I don't know about you. I don't like suffering more than anybody else does, right? I'm a, I'm a baby when it comes to pain. I will try to get out of pain as quick as I can, right? I got like a little cough or a little something. I'm like, oh, <clears throat> I think I better go to the doctor. Like, I'm not like some of these men who like never go to the doctor. Now, I don't like enjoy going to the doctor, but if I, if, if there's a problem and there's pain, I want to get it solved now. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't like going to the dentist. In fact, I think I, uh, I guess that is one doctor I did avoid because just going to the dentist, and I apologize if any of you are a dentist, um, it's just not an easy thing to, to sit there. You're just so vulnerable with your mouth open. And, and then they want to try to talk to you while your mouth is open. So it's like, hey, how's your week? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, how am I supposed to answer this? You got gauze and all kinds of stuff in my mouth and a clamp in there and why did you ask me that question? And um, But I praise God because when we changed dentists, I think I might have told this story before, uh, we changed dentists and, and they, they actually had what is called a dental hygienist, which is somebody who, who has a heart, um, <laughs> unlike most dentists. And, um, and they were gentle and they were nice. And I was like, I would go to the dentist if they treated me like this. This lady does. She was kind and like thoughtful human being that understood that I was in a very vulnerable position there at the dentist. And, uh, but I just don't like pain. Uh, but, but as you think about pain, as I think about pain, um, is there good that can come out of our pain? If you've lived for any length of time, you, you have realized if you cooperate with God, there is lots of good that God himself will bring out of pain. I don't know if any of you have some scars. People love to show scars. As a pastor, whenever I go to the hospitals, people love to show me their scars. And um, this is part of the job. Sometimes I, I pray that I have like a, one of those little blue bags because if you show me your scar, I may need to barf and you might have to end up taking care of me because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of squeamish like that. My wife loves to look at that sort of stuff. She's like, check this out, you know. And uh, people are like, look, look, pastor, just let me do this. Like taking off all their outfit, like check this out. You know, I'm like, ah. And, uh, but every scar has with it a story, doesn't it? Every scar has a story. I have a number of scars uh, on my body from various things. One from when my hand magically went through a glass window. I don't really know how that happened. Uh, I wasn't angry. I didn't punch it, no. Uh, but that scar has a story associated with that. I have a scar above my eyebrow where I got stitches at a basketball game. And, um, and you know, my eyebrow met someone's elbow and, um, and just split me wide open. And I've got various other scars. And with every scar, there's a story that I could tell you associated with that scar. Here's what happened. And, and, then, and so it's like this, this little story. And you have some scars, don't you? And you have some stories. You know, the harder scars are the internal ones, aren't they? The weight, the depression, the loneliness, the betrayal that maybe you have faced. And that leaves a scar on the inside, doesn't it? And people can't always see those, but we have a story for those same scars as well. And, and as we navigate with God and his strength, he is the one that enables us to, to, to tell the fuller story, to be able to say, look, yeah, this thing tried to take me out. I got this scar here and it almost ended me. But I'm here to tell you because of God, 
I'm here today. And yeah, I've got that scar, and that's a reminder of what I went through, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that God brought me through that season. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be. You've got some scars. I've got some scars. But I, the, the reminder is, and this is what Paul is reminding us here, is that, is that God is sovereign over our suffering. And if we think about suffering and, and the origin of suffering and the kindness of God, right? Think, think about God. Think about us. Who created suffering in this world? It's kind of like a trick question, isn't it? I'll give you a chance to think about it. How did sin enter our world? It was from us. It was from us, right? We opened up Pandora's box of sin, and we are paying the consequence. Every heartache, every death, every cancer, every divorce, every child that is abused, and we could go down the list as the result of sin that has infected every human heart, has infected our whole world, and we started that. We, we said, God, no, I, I don't think your way is best. I think you're holding out on me. And, and we prefer to do it our way. And in case you want to blame Adam and Eve for that, just sit in their bare feet for a second, because I guess they didn't have shoes. You and I would have made the same decision. And in fact, we've proven it, right? You've had some very clear, I've had some very clear instances where it's like, I know I'm not supposed to take this. I know this is not good for me. And what have you and I done? Take it and enjoyed it. And then paid the consequences for it. And so let's not be too hard on Adam and Eve because you and I probably would not have done any better. And we have yet proved that by our lives. And so Adam and Eve and God could have said, hey, here's the consequences for your sin. Here's the suffering. But just think about the kindness of God that in the midst of what we created, he says, you know what? Here is this nasty mess that you created. And God says, watch, watch how I'm going to put my hands all in it. I'm going to get my hands dirty in your mess and I'm going to turn what you did into something good. See, we tend to look at God, and many people, and, and I get it because I've been there too. We tend to blame God for the suffering. God, where were you? Why, why didn't you allow? Why, why didn't you heal? Why didn't you answer? All those sorts of things. And yet God, and we forget to see his kindness, and he comes and put his hands right in the middle. That's what he did through Jesus Christ. He sent him to live in our world, face the same temptation, face the same trials, the same death, the same heartache, the same loneliness and depression. And Jesus got right in the middle and he didn't have to. God could have left us on our own. And so he takes what we broke and he says, I will fix that for you, my child. God can make, as we often say, beauty out of ashes. Have you heard that statement before? Who created the ashes? We did. Who burned down the house? We did. And God says, I'll turn your, your mistake. I will turn your sin. I will turn your rebellion into something beautiful if, if you will work with me. And that's a big if. There's a couple of verses I want to share with you as, as we get started. Uh, some of just my favorite verses that remind me as I go through uh, the, the difficulties of life. James chapter 1. In fact, I see my brother Jarvis here. He, he would frequently quote this, and he has been living that through his scars that he has been dealing with um, over the past two years. Uh, one of our deacons, Jarvis Ellis. James 1, 2-4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Right? Some of us could just work on that verse for like 40 years, right? Consider it pure joy. You ever considered it pure joy when you face a trial? None of us are like, thank you, God, for that. 
Thank you, God, for that traffic. But why would we thank God? Why would we count it joy? Why would we consider it joy? Because we know that God is going to work something deeper for us. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 3, because, why would we count it joy? Because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of your faith comes through this trial and it produces perseverance. And verse 4, let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of us would like to be mature and complete, not lacking anything? Right? We just don't want to go through the school of hard knocks that it takes to get there. One pastor said this, suffering is like the foreman, the foreman on the construction project that is our lives. That construction project, which is our sanctification, which is us becoming mature and complete, becoming stronger and deeper in our faith and our maturity and our love. And, and it's, it's suffering, though. You may have seen the, the little YouTube video or the cute little skit where, where it's like God is chiseling away all the junk at us. Like we're, we're a big rock of junk. And, I, and God's got to chisel away all the impurities, you know. And it's like God is like, pink, pink. And they're like, ooh, not there. God, can you not, not, that, that, that piece is okay. And God just wants to chisel away at us, making us into his image, making us into someone stronger, more mature, complete, not lacking anything. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says this. In this, and he's talking about sufferings, in this you greatly rejoice. There's the word again. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So if we cooperate with God, He will bring something. He will bring beauty out of our ashes. He will turn our mess, as they say, into a masterpiece. But we've got to cooperate with him. And so let's look at what Paul says to us as we track through this book of Thessalonians, the first uh, few verses there. And uh, I'll give you a couple things to write down as we make some application. Point number one is this. If we cooperate, suffering will test the genuineness of your faith. That's really what we just read in those other verses there from the Bible. It will test the genuineness of your faith and of my faith. Many people say they have faith, but it's got to be tested, right? I think I said a few months ago, uh, what's tested can be trusted. And I asked you guys, hey, how many of you like tests? And, and everybody says, no, I don't like tests. But how many of us want our doctors to be tested, right? How many of you want your brakes to be tested? How many of you want this roof to be tested, right? We, we like things that are tested because what's tested can be trusted. And so if we cooperate with God, suffering will increase our faith, will grow our faith, and it will remind us, it will test the genuineness of our faith. Look back with me at the uh, first couple verses there, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, again, this is Paul's standard greeting, almost the same way he started First Thessalonians. Notice also the discipling relationships Paul has. He's always with some other people, always making disciples. This is our call, church, right? We should always be in disciple-making relationships. You should have a, a Sylvanus and a Timothy with you. Um, so who are those people? That's a free reminder. To the church of the Thessalonians, notice this word here, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what. It's so good to be in 
God our Father, to be surrounded by him, to have him as our refuge. So the church of Thessalonians in God our Father. This is how we endure any sufferings, right, is that we are in Christ. We are protected in him, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as Miss Dottie so uh, beautifully paused on verse 2, grace, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, how we need grace and his peace to navigate these storms, don't we? Maybe you've heard the statement before, right, that uh, there are kind of three phases of life. I know my pastor taught me this, and uh, and you may already know it, but if not, uh, three phases of life. Either um, you're coming out of a trial, just coming out of a trial, you're in the middle of a trial right now, or you're preparing to go into a trial, right? This, this is the world we live in. This is the reality. And, um, and, and so these trials, these sufferings, but God will turn them for our good when we allow him to do his sanctifying work, his sovereign work in us. And then look at verse 3. This is really where we uh, are going to spend a little more time here. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is what? Growing, not just growing, but growing how? Growing abundantly. Their faith is growing abundantly in the midst of their trials and tribulations. You may not feel, listen to me now, you're going through some stuff right now. And you may not feel like your faith is growing. In fact, you feel like, Pastor, my faith is gone. I'm here to remind you, God is at work increasing your faith. I can tell you some of the deep, the darkest times I've went through, some of the most doubting times I've went through. And I have doubts as a pastor. I have plenty of them. I've doubted God. I'm like, oh, where are you? But after I get through that, my faith grows much stronger. God, I don't understand this in the Bible. How does this line up with that? God, I don't understand. And, and man, when I get through that season of doubting and God shows himself to me, I'm like, wow, God, you are amazing. And God is testing the genuineness of our faith. He is uh, encouraging us in this. And how many of you know that, that, that when God is on the move, Satan kind of ramps up the attack? We were just talking about that with our elders and our, and our deacons as we were praying before the service today, is that when you are moving forward, when you're being obedient as a believer, Satan is going to try to take you out. If you ain't doing nothing, guess what? Satan ain't got no reason to mess with you. You're just sitting on the sidelines, not doing anything for the kingdom of God. Satan's like, yep, you're cool. You're, you're playing for my team anyways. I'll just leave you alone. And, um, but when you start to step out in faith, when you start to walk in righteousness, you start to, like we did last month in, in January, you're like, I'm going to abide. I'm going to draw my roots deep down in, in the Bible and in, and in prayer. I'm going to get into this. And in February, I'm going to do some fasting. And I'm, I haven't ever fasted before, but I'm going to try it. And, um, and you start doing that. And all of a sudden, you're in arguments with your spouse more than you've ever been. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Or you get fired from your job. And you're like, what is going on? Because you're trying to advance the kingdom. And Satan wants to take you out because now you're a threat. But I need you to know he's a defeated foe, right? Thessalonians was a strategic city in the world, in the ancient world. It was a strategic city. It was connected to the Aegean Sea. In fact, David, I think we have some pictures. I think I put them out of order, but you're smart enough to navigate that. Um, let me just give you a picture. It's, it's in kind of the upper part of Greece, and you can see it's connected to the Aegean Sea there. Uh, you see where Thessalonica is there. That's modern-day Greece. Um, it's the prime location there. Um, there was a huge port that was built there, even by uh, Xerxes, the great Persian emperor. He built a massive port there, and so ships would come from all over that part of the world there uh, to Thessalonica. But it wasn't just because it had this huge port in that area. It was also connected to what they called the Ignatian 
Road, the Ignatian Road. I think we got another picture of that. That is this road that goes all across and connects um, the, the, the east and the west together, the western uh, part of Europe with the east in Turkey. And so you can see that red line there. It, it goes all the way out um, to, to the end of Greece, but then it goes through Greece. And you can see Thessalonica there in the middle. But if we back on up, go to the next one there for me, David. You can see that here's how it connects east to west. It goes all the way over to Turkey and Constantinople. And so that's where all the traders would come. And so they would hit that port, and right there is where that road is. And then stuff would go all over the place. And Paul, listen to me now, plants a church there. He plants a church there. And these believers start spreading the gospel. And the gospel is starting to change people's lives. And they turn from their idols, and they turn from their wickedness. And 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 marriages get restored and people stop stop walking in, in, in ugliness and hatred and, and wickedness and they start walking now in holiness and righteousness and, and the enemy just ramps up the attack on these believers. And so man it is it is a, a big deal. Satan doesn't like that. But I want you to know that God's work won't be stopped. It just continues to go on, right? Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy this church. But it's not going to be stopped. Let me tell you actually what happens a little bit. We'll read Acts uh, 17. I think we have that in there, David. Here, here is to give you a picture in Acts 17 of what happened at first. We don't know exactly historically what happened after that, but you can read the account. Acts 17, uh, verses 5 through 10, it says this. But the Jews were jealous after Paul started the church there and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. Don't you like that? Reach over, touch your neighbor, get to know them. We hadn't had a chance to talk to your neighbor today. So ask him, are you part of the rabble? Go ahead, get to know your neighbor. Are you part of the rabble? I'm guessing y'all don't typically use that word, do you? Are you a rabble rouser? Have you heard that one before? Means a troublemaker. Means a troublemaker. We were, we, we were, there's a few over there. Why aren't you sitting there to keep an eye on them for me, Mr. Joe? We, we, we saw some, some young men of the rabble. We were uh, leaving uh, the Wells house, uh, Donnie, myself, uh, Greg, and, and Joey, and, and we had to turn around and continue to pray for the Wells family. They're part of our church family there. Uh, Miss Marie Wells, her husband, um, Jim, went home to be with the Lord on Friday, and it's, it's been a very trying time for them. He spent 76 days uh, in the hospitals, a lot of ups and downs. And so continue to pray for them. But as we were leaving their house, we, we had to turn around the back of, of, I thought the street would go through, and then we turned around. And there were some dudes there, you know how they do, in the middle of the day, ain't got nothing to do, right? Just posted up, like watching us the whole time. And um, nothing to do in the middle of the day, just standing on the corner. Um, and uh, that's, the, that's the rabble, right? That's the rabble. That's just troublemakers. So, so they go get the troublemakers, and they, and they bring them, and it says they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. I'm guessing that you haven't been persecuted to this extent for your Christian faith, though I know we have had some struggles, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they were looking for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. And have come here also, by the way, if you were there, you could correct them and say, no, 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 sin turned the world upside down. We came to turn it what? Right side up. There we go. It's just helping us as a church, right? And Jason, verse 7, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Hey, 
these guys got the message straight. This is everything that the believers were doing. <laughs> He's not lying. Um, they turned the world right side up, and they said, there is another king. His name is Jesus, and, and you must submit to him. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason um, and the rest, they let them go. By the way, they were calmed down there by that money. It shows you their true motivations there. And then uh, if you skip over verse 10, it says, um, uh, says this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went. So they, they got Paul and Silas out of the city there. They arrived and went to a Jewish synagogue. Now, notice this. I don't know if you understood that. They went to a different city, a couple, uh, couple close to 50 to 80 miles away, right? And they went to another city. So they thought, whew, we're good. You know, no problem. We left Thessalonica. We're in Berea now. And as it starts out, the Bereans do well. Uh, in fact, the Bereans are, are called noble people because they study the scriptures and they, they, they receive the message there. And, um, but then in verse 13, Acts chapter 17, verse 13, it says this. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned, watch this, that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Can you imagine what's in somebody's heart? That not only you attack somebody in your own city, but you hear their preaching miles away, and you've got to now go attack them there? I mean, that's nothing but a satanic attack that they had to go outside. And some of you have dealt with that, right? You, you haven't messed with anybody at your office. And all of a sudden, they start directing their attitude towards you. And you're like, I, I wasn't even part of this. What, what happened? There's drama going on in your house between your family members, and there's feuding going on. And you need to know there, there is often a satanic ploy behind that. And you need to continue to press on. And God is working out your faith pressure, trials, persecution. They will test the genuineness of your faith. But you know what happens? It will purify your faith. Or if you don't have a faith at all, you know what it will do? It will wither your faith. If you had a false faith, when the heat comes on and they crank up the heat, it'll wither away because your faith wasn't genuine in the first place. Jesus talks about that over in Matthew 13. He gives the parable of the seeds, and he talks about really the ground, and, and, and the seed falls on the ground, and these things happen, these, and, and, and the seeds fall away because they really had no root. And so, sir or ma'am, have you fallen away during a time of trial? Maybe that is God saying to you, your faith wasn't real the whole time. Maybe it's just a condition of backsliding. I don't know exactly, but is God reminding you of that? Because you know what happens is when we're squeezed, what's inside of us comes out. See, a lot of us put on a good outside, right? And we look good and we, we know the lingo. We know the words to say. We know some songs at church. We know how to pray. And we look good on the outside. But when we're squeezed, what's really inside of us comes out, right? If I had a lemon up here and I squeezed the lemon, what would come out? Lemon juice. You guys are good. Excellent job. The power of observation. Lemon juice would come out. Why? Because it's a lemon, right? And it would taste bitter. But some of us, when we get squeezed and the bitterness comes out, we blame it on the squeezing. We're saying, because I'm going through this, that's why I'm acting like this. Oh, but if you squeeze an orange, what comes out of the orange? Orange juice. Same squeezing going on. But there's a sweetness over here on the orange juice. 
And there's a sourness here because what was on the inside is actually revealed. And so when you get squeezed, it's revealing the genuineness of who you really are. Do you really have faith in Christ like you say you do? Or are you just giving him lip service when you get squeezed? It's revealing who you are. So struggles, persecutions, difficulties. And notice that it says here their faith is growing abundantly, growing abundantly. The word there is actually made up of two words in the Greek. Oxano, which means growth. It actually means natural growth. That's what they say for plants and, and flowers and things in the garden, oxano. But then it has the word hooper attached to it, which actually gives you these two words, natural growth and hooper. In Greek means super. So now you have, how, how is it that their faith is growing in the midst of these trials? They have something called super natural faith. That's, that's, that's what it means there, supernatural faith. Where did that supernatural faith come from? Ephesians 2 reminds us that faith is a gift from God. And so their supernatural faith was a gift from God. It is God in them who enabled them to endure those trials. They had a supernatural faith because they had the grace of God and the peace of God. They were in Christ, which is what we read in those first couple of verses. And so point number one is that suffering will test the genuineness of our faith. Number two, and we'll move quickly here, it will grow a love that is strong. Suffering, if we let it, if we cooperate, will grow a love that is strong. Have you been through some hardship? And if you cooperate with God and you work with him, you come out more loving? And that's happened to me. You know how when you're a kid, right? And you go, I will never be like my parents. I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe they wouldn't let me go out with her. Couldn't believe they wouldn't let me go out with her. I couldn't believe they wouldn't let me go to that concert. My parents don't know anything. When I'm a parent, I'll let my kids do whatever they want. Right? And then you become a parent. And you see how hard it is. And you see how great the consequences are. And all of a sudden, you start saying no to your kids, right? All of a sudden, you got squeezed. And, and you got some more wisdom now. You got some more love there, right? All of a sudden, I know that's how it's happened to me. All of a sudden, you're single and you think, when I'm married, I'm not going to be like that married couple. When I'm married, boy, we're just going to be all honeymoon. We'll never end. We're going to be smooching and holding hands. We're never going to argue. That couple argues over the toilet paper. <laughs> Baby girl, that'll never be us. Right? And all of a sudden, you get married. And you realize how hard it is and you go through some squeezing and some struggles. And if you cooperate, you will come out a more loving person because you realize, man, I was kind of judgmental to those folks. Right. Then you have before you have kids. Right. Oh, this is the one that hurts. Right. You're like, look at that parent letting their kid run around like that. When I have kids, they will be obedient. <laughs> These people, when I have kids, they'll, they won't watch any TV. When I have kids. They won't get a pacifier. We won't use any plastic. We're going to do all this stuff. And all of a sudden, you, you become a parent, realize how hard it is. You realize how judgmental you were on those other people. You come out refined with a greater love. If you allow suffering to do its sanctifying work in you, your love and appreciation for others who have walked through those trials will grow. And so we navigate all those things. You say, when I'm old, I won't be grumpy. 
And then you get old and your back is in chronic pain. And your knee is always hurting. And you realize how hard it was for your grandparents to love you and put on a smile or to endure some difficulties. And all of a sudden, you're filled with more love when you go through some pain, right? And you're like, wow, I didn't realize how difficult that was. It's like we say in the, in, in, in the pastoral world, you know, we say, hey, minor difference between major surgery and minor surgery. You know what that is? Minor surgery is when you have it. Major surgery is when I have it. Right? I got to get my toenail clipped. It's like, oh, Lord, what are I going to do? You know? And, uh, and, and so all of a sudden you go through some stuff and you are filled with more love. Look at the verse there, uh, still in verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians. There he says this, right? This is, um, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is what? Increasing. They're getting squeezed and persecuted and what's coming out of them? More love shows you what was truly inside of them. And by the way, man, this has got to be an encouragement for this church, right? This church is going through it. And here Paul gives them some encouragement. Can I just give you a a freebie? Could you encourage somebody this week? Because your neighbor, your spouse, your sister, your brother's probably going through it. And if you just encourage them and said, hey, you're growing, it's okay. You know what a relief that is? Because they're just under it. They're under attack all the time and they're feeling the struggle. Could you just encourage your child, your teenager? Teenager, y'all still with me? I appreciate, love, doctor. Could you encourage your parents and tell them, you're doing a good job, mom, I love you. Dad, I appreciate you. If you want to give your parent a heart attack, that would work too. And uh, But don't do it for that reason. And um, But listen, just encourage them because you don't know how hard it is to be a parent. You don't know how hard it is to be a parent. It is so hard. And so encourage somebody. Let your love grow. Number three. Suffering will anchor a hope that goes deep if you cooperate with it. It will anchor a hope that goes deep. It will anchor a perseverance, a steadfastness that goes deep. I'm not a great sailor. The only sailing I've done is on a jet ski. I guess that's not really sailing. My boat skills are minimal, but I'm told by the mariners, and as I read, that if you want to survive a storm in a boat, you've got to anchor Deep, you got to have an anchor that will hold you in all the ups and downs. And hope becomes that anchor for us if we cooperate with God and we learn to trust him. We begin to be hopeful in the midst of our trials. We begin to look at that storm and say, no, I've got an anchor that's going to hold me. That's a big wave, but I know the anchor will hold because I know in whom I have believed. Not I know religion, but I know in whom is what Paul would say in another part of Scripture. I know in whom I have believed believed. Look with me at verse 4, as again he encourages them. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you to the churches. And this isn't a a bad kind of boasting. This isn't a prideful boasting. He's going around to the other churches and saying, man, the Thessalonians are going through it and they're growing. He says this, what do they boast about? About your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. Their steadfastness. Another translation, another word could be their perseverance, their patience, their endurance, and their faithfulness. They have that hope. There's a quote by William Barclay, Bible scholar. I love what he had to say there. It's such a reminder. I think we'll throw it on the screen there. Barclay said this. He says, this hope, this word there, describes the spirit which does not only patiently endure the circumstances in which it finds itself, 
but which masters them. Did you catch that? This kind of hope, as it continues to trust in God, begins to master the trials because I know that God is working all things together for my good. He says this, and it uses them to strengthen its own nerve and sinew. It accepts the blows of life, but in accepting them, watch this, it transforms them into stepping stones of new achievement. Could that be you, sir or ma'am? Would you receive the blows you get from life and use them as a stepping stone? Maybe you've heard these phrases before, is that with God, man, every obstacle now becomes an opportunity. This stumbling block could be a stepping stone. See, your trials could make you bitter or they could make you better, right? We've got to switch those letters, the E to the I. The trials will draw you near to God or they will drive you away from God. And so will, what will it be for, for you? Do you have a hope that is anchored deep? Today is the Super Bowl, in case you guys didn't know. Anybody excited about that? Any 49ers fans here? No. Any Kansas City fans here? All right, all right, we got some Kansas City fans. Excellent. Wasn't even, that's right, yeah. Anybody going to be working tonight? Anybody going to be sleeping, going to bed early? I was reading a story uh, by, uh, about one of the linemen, one of the offensive linemen who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, he's a believer, and he was given his testimony uh, online there. I think we got a picture of him, Stefan uh, Wesniewski. And if, if you're into football, maybe you, you know him. Uh, but, man, this, this is an awesome dude, awesome man of faith there on the offensive line, also a big dude. Um, and uh, he, he plays there for Kansas City. Um, but... He spent the first few weeks of the season on his couch. Not because he was injured, because he was fired. He was watching this team and his friends and his teammates from his couch. He was without a job for the first, I believe, five weeks of the season. Before that, uh, he, he had been with actually uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, and he had started and played for their Super Bowl team. But then his career took a sharp turn in 2018. He was benched during the season, then fired at the end of the year, then rehired, and then fired again at training camp. He says, it was a frustrating time for me. I was struggling with my doubt and with belief, he says, but I believe and I know that God allowed all this to happen to test me, to bring him glory, and to teach me how to better follow him. See, Stephen had his faith anchored in a hope that God was going to work all things together for his good. And so he navigated being fired and getting kicked off. And then and he wasn't even a starter once Kansas City picked him up. And then he started uh, starting for many of the games this season. Now here he is at the Super Bowl. So thirdly, is that it gives us a hope that goes deep. But fourthly and finally is this, is that it will remind you that your future is secure. If you allow Suffering to do its sanctifying work, it will remind you that your future is secure. You have a, a future that is secure in the hands of Christ. We're about to sing this song in just a, a few moments. It just reminds us that, that our, our names, and actually comes from the Old Testament, that our names are written on the very palms of God. Are you familiar with that scripture? Do you even know that? Your name, my name is written on the hand of God, engraved is actually what the scripture says, engraved. God doesn't forget you. 
Your, your eternity is, is secure. The gospel of John talks about our hope as believers is, is secure. It, and, and Jesus says this. He says, man, whoever is in my father's hand, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. No one can be plucked out of the hand of God. And so even sometimes we're facing these trials and we're thinking, man, I may not be, I may not. God, am I ever going to get through this? God, am I really a believer? And, and that's a great question to ask. But sometimes Satan wants to play that guilt game with us and wants to get us to doubt our faith when there's not a good reason to doubt our faith. And believers are secure in Christ no matter what you do, no matter what's happened. And so sometimes we think, oh, maybe this is happening to me because I did something bad. And I need you to know God doesn't work for that. It's not an A plus B equals C. Yeah, there's plenty of consequences in this world. In fact, people had tried to test Jesus with that. And they asked Jesus, hey, did this happened to this town because these people had sinned. And they, they would often ask, hey, this guy, uh, he, he, he has this disease. We want to know who sent him or his parents. And Jesus says it doesn't work. It's not a linear thing like that. But I want you to know that you're secure. It will remind you that you're secure. Look at verse 5 with me. It goes on to say this. Verse 5, this is evidence. This is evidence. What's evidence? The, the persecutions, the afflictions, the suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. God is still right and good in all that he does, even as he allows these hardships that come to us. He says this, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Sometimes when you're suffering, it is a reminder that you're a believer. Amen? It's a reminder. That, that should be an encouragement. I know it's not really that much of an encouragement, right? Like, Lord, could you encourage me in a different way? But when Satan comes against you, you know that you're doing what is right. You're knowing that you're walking in obedience. It's evidence. He says that you were counted worthy of suffering for the kingdom for which you are a part of. It's evidence of their salvation, which has already been secured. Now notice this, stated this way, they, they, they are not made worthy of the kingdom because they suffer. That's important. It's not that the suffering made them worthy. It's that God counted them worthy. God said, I see this in you. I know, I know who's in you. I know that my spirit dwells in you. And I know that this, you're going to come out of this as refined by fire. This is my child. And so it's a reminder. It is evidence that your future is secure. It's evidence that God loved them, not a sign that he had abandoned the Thessalonians. And so that's true for us too as we look at that verse there. Jesus reminded us that we can expect persecution. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And actually, if we just think about it in this way, in these very simple terms, and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper here. In fact, I'll ask uh, the man if you guys want to come uh, make the Lord's table ready. As we think about Christ, how he lived on this earth, how he lived righteously, how he did God's will completely and perfectly. And yet what happened to Jesus? He was attacked. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was crucified. He suffered greatly. If that happened to our Savior, if that happened to our leader, what do you expect will happen to us as his followers? The same thing. And so we can expect suffering. Pastor, can we get like some good news maybe? <laughs> that doesn't preach too much in 2020. 
let him pre preach too much, that, that as believers we should expect suffering. Jesus said, take up your cross, take up your instrument of execution, deny yourself and follow me. And so we can expect difficulties. We can expect suffering because that's what our Lord went through. And why should we expect any different? And as we come to the Lord's table, right, it's this reminder of the suffering of Christ. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Pastor, can I get some good news? Yes, absolutely. The gospel means good news. What's the good news? As we started here, I asked you this question. Can good things come out of suffering? Absolutely. Can beauty come out of ashes? Yes. Can a testimony come out of a test? Yes. But you've got to go through it first. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper is that reminder that, that Christ went to the cross. He shed his blood for you and for me. And that great suffering, in fact, we could say Jesus was the only perfect person, the only innocent. We say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let's talk about who's really good. Because not one human being is fully good. Jesus was the only one who was fully good. He was perfect, and yet he suffered. But it brought about what? The salvation of many. It brought about my salvation and your salvation. And any who would put their trust in Jesus Christ, he had to suffer so that all who placed their trust in him wouldn't have to suffer a greater hardship, an eternity of suffering in a place called hell that God never desired or intended us to go to. So, yes, beautiful things come out of suffering. As we prepare for the Lord's table, if you're new here with us and you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you might be from a different church, different denomination. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. In just a few moments, we're going to pass the, the, the plates down the rows here. We ask that you take the bread and the, the cup of juice and just hold it to the end and we'll all take it together. But if you're here today, you're not a follower of Christ, you haven't given your life to him, just let, let, let the plate pass from you. Why? Because we're judgmental? No, because we, we want to give you the, the true bread of life. We want to give you the, the real eternity changing. This is a reminder for us of what Jesus did for us. We want to offer you Christ in a personal relationship with him. So let's bow our heads to pray and, and just have a, a few moments here to consider our suffering, a few moments to consider this week maybe before we take the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you to have a conversation with God about your week. Maybe you've been suffering this week and you just want to say, God, help me. Maybe you want to say, God, help me to have hope. God, help me to trust you're going to take this ashes and turn it into something beautiful. That's okay. Maybe for you, you need to confess your sin. I know I need to daily. Confess my sin. That's one of the things the Bible actually reminds us to do before we take the Lord's Supper is to confess our sin. So I just want to encourage you to use this still time, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, and speak to Him.
Father, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the good news of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the the horror that it was. The cross was not pretty. We adorn crosses. We use them as jewelry and, and, uh, and decorations, but the cross was awful. The suffering you went through for us was awful. Mocked, spit upon, beard plucked out, whipped, bruised for us. God, may we see the suffering of our Savior and then be reminded in the midst of our suffering that you went through it too. We're not alone. That you endure that suffering so that we wouldn't have to face an eternity of suffering. God, how worthy are you? So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do it, God, with somberness, but also, Lord, with joy, as you did, Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the shame, despising the cross. God, we thank you for that. Speak to us now as we celebrate your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.